0: Good afternoon, Dr. Daniel Guerra. This is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the uh, 31st of March, 2022. We are still on diabetes. This is diabetes lecture 32 by my numbering calculus. And we were talking about cytokines, families of cytokines. And we're gonna get into more lipid metabolism associated with obesity type 2 diabetes, as we wrap up this long arc of lectures and this pathophysiological, pathobiochemical phenomenon known as obesity-linked type 2 diabetes. So let me refresh your memory. Interleukin-6, a particular cytokine that gets a great deal of attention because it is considered one of the keystone pro-inflammatory cytokines involved in what can become an episodic, highly dangerous increase in total cytokine production and therefore inflammation upon infection or sometimes because of a stress response. So The overproduction of interleukin 6 and its binding to, in the various isoforms of the interleukin 6 family, binding to a constellation of their receptors, um, can cause a tremendous explosion of inflammation in a specific tissue bed, or even can occur systemically. And this can be obviously very dangerous to the human being, can put a person into shock. And in fact, people can die from the overstimulation of the inflammatory response, especially when it hits uh, regions of the central nervous system, the cardiac uh, muscle, and also, of course, in the liver and the kidney. Right now, we're just giving you an understanding of what interleukins are. Again, they bind to a common type of receptor. But the receptor, as I said, is an adapter complex. And by that, I mean the adapters are other proteins which are embedded in the membrane because this particular uh, signaling occurs when the ligand, that is the interleukin-6 family of cytokines, one of them, binds to this uh, glycoprotein, 130 kilodalton GP-130, it's called. GP stands for glycoprotein. When it binds to that, it occurs within a complex of accessory proteins, which can allow that GP130, which is the parent receptor protein, to interact with other proteins and therefore carry out and facilitate the rest of the component, signal transduction cascade, which of course is going to become intracellular. And then it's going to induce the cell of which the interleukin-6 bound to. And then depending on the way that reception is processed, induce a a further enhancement of inflammation, um, trigger a quiescence of inflammation, or simply alter metabolism and or gene expression. So as I've been mentioning, cytokines act very much like hormones. Okay, so There's no exception here. Now, as of the publication of the paper I've been reading, which is uh, just came out, I guess, a year or two ago, um, the literature suggests there are at least eight different cytokines in the cytokine interleukin-6 family. And All of them will bind to some form complex membrane associated GP130. The interleukin 6 cytokines, of course, are involved in a myriad of functions. I just was alluding to some of those, but let me give you some particulars. IL 6 cytokines can stimulate B cells. And by that, I mean they can stimulate the production not only of the immunoglobulins, but also of B cell activation, right? Which can then co-stimulate with T cells and induce a more florid acquired immune response. This is gonna be subsequent to the presentation of some antigen so that the B cell that is then triggered to produce a particular, let's say, immunoglobulin, also known as antibody, will be targeted to a specific antigen. And in, in, in coherent uh, interaction with the T cell, making a um, T cell B cell synapse, those interactions can then turn on multiple um, inflammatory and regulatory, as well as gene expression programs. Okay. now, the metabolic functions and the neurotrophic functions of cytokines has gained a great deal of attention. And we've talked about these in the past. I also will remind you that interleukin-6 is a major myokine. We're going to get to that a little bit later, probably not today. But the interleukin-6 receptor, when you use a neutralizing monoclonal antibody to that receptor, such as using tacilizumab, okay, tacilizumab. That particular monoclonal antibody is used worldwide for the treatment of autoimmune disease. Now, you may have heard of it also recently because it's been used in COVID-19 severe um, morbidity patients. Again, that's, to psilizumab, okay? And all of this is a monoclonal antibody to IL-6R, okay? But it's classically used in autoimmune diseases, such as arthritis, and also some forms of respiratory disease, which are linked to autoimmune disorders, okay? So the blockade of IL-6 seems to be very efficient also, when that occurs, to block TNF alpha signaling, and again, this has been classically described in the literature for uh, RA patients, rheumatoid arthritic patients. Now, let me go back to the muscle for a minute. This is a paper published in 2019 in Frontiers in Physiology. So it's going to be a review article, and of course, it explains that w- what we already know: that the muscle is composed of fibers. Uh, that produce uh, a contraction and a relaxation, which results in a force and movement of the body. We're talking about skeletal muscle, obviously. Of course, the muscle itself is primarily necessary for maintaining the overall body position in space and time, as well as locomotion and movement and even movement of internal organs as the body moves so that they don't become displaced or otherwise become ruptured. Now, this is very important to understand. Skeletal muscle also functions to maintain the integrity of all the other positions of the organs. And that includes the lung, liver, the kidney, as well as the uh, intestine, the pancreas, and even the whole cardiac system. So skeletal muscle plays multiple roles, not just locomotion. And of course, skeletal muscle that is involved in locomotion is one that is associated with free will. And therefore that component of the central nervous system, which directs agency. And this, as I was saying a couple of lectures ago, results in an entire um, network of epigenetic alterations in gene expression based on the regular utilization of muscles as controlled from the central nervous system upon signaling, multiple levels of signaling, including, as it turns out, the myokines, including IL-6, to facilitate a response that is always Um, uniform once it is induced. So consider the muscular activity of playing a piano or even using a chainsaw or a splitting wall. Those repetitive um, muscular events become um, programmed into the central nervous system because of the interaction of the skeletal muscle, which is itself an endocrine Organ, along with the adipose, where energy can be derived for long endurance, control of muscle contraction, including of course the IMTG that you find intramyocellular, right? That is intramuscular triacylglycerol, the IMTG. That is going to be linked up with lipoprotein metabolism, and you know that the adipose also produces uh, its own form of hormones and signaling molecules, and we call these adipokines. Adipokines like leptin have a specific receptor in the central nervous system. For leptin, it happens to be the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. Whereas the myokines can have receptors not only in the central nervous system, uh, for example, in the microglia, one place where they have a specific reception, but also in neurons but also muscular neurons and indeed organs, such as the liver and the pancreas and the kidney in particular. Okay. So you see how the system comes together. All right. So depending on the muscle, it's going to be therefore be performing different functions. And that means it's, there's going to be a different repertoire of gene expression. So you have a dynamic system rather than a quiescent system. That means the only time a skeletal muscle is really in operation is when it is functioning. The skeletal muscle at rest has basal metabolism, usually beta oxidation of fatty acids, just to maintain cellular integrity, right? But once the muscle is activated for say locomotion, like running, or again, using your fingers to play the piano, a steady amount of Energy needs to flow. Often, that can be contributed by circulating glucose, but because glucose has to go through, uh, at least in the muscle tissue, insulin-dependent uptake by mobilizing the glute transporter to the plasma membrane, and because glucose levels rise and fall in circulation based on diet, right? Postprandial, you clear the glucose because of insulin uh, binding to the receptor and taking glucose out of the blood the skeletal muscle still relies very heavily on the production and then the utilization of intramuscular triacylglycerol So that kind of dynamic has to be, the bioenergetic dynamic also has to be considered. And then as I just said, an alteration of gene expression to facilitate the full muscular contraction system, which also involves trafficking lactic acid, nalanine, aspartic acid, and glutamic acid and glutamine from the muscle during the normal turnover of muscular fibers, which, which are composed of proteins, which need to uh, be broken down proteolytically and then reformed to maintain muscular integrity. Okay. And so that's, of course, going to feed into bioenergetics and things like the Cori cycle and the alanine cycle going to the liver. And then what, what's next, gluconeogenesis, and that whole control over celiacal carboxylase, li- lipogenesis, and or beta oxidation running through the mitochondrons, for example, in the liver. And then the next component of that is lipoprotein metabolism. And depending on if it's anabolic or catabolic, also you must include the ketone bodies. Okay. So you see all the things we've been talking about in diabetes are all involved in this discussion we're now in. All right Now, Cardiac and smooth muscle are different. Those again are associated with involuntary contraction. And so there is no agency associated with that, right? You don't have to use your central nervous system, um, will to generate heart contraction, or again, uh, very importantly, smooth muscle, uh, Uh, cell contraction, okay? These are happening independent of the um, prefrontal cortex and the executive decision-making that's associated with human agency. And you find smooth muscles throughout the body, right? Particularly aligning blood vessels. So if you just want to consider just your angiogenic profile, that's all smooth muscle activity. Myokines now, back to them, those are the muscle associated, muscle as an endocrine organ. Myokines are proteins and they are essentially cytokines, sometimes not cytokines, but of course, they're still proteins or peptides. And they are synthesized and then secreted by the myocyte in the muscle tissue. And that's in response to every cycle of muscle contraction. So again, they're called myokines, and that number, that name, wasn't coined until two thousand three. Okay, so that wasn't in the primary literature until then. So it's not quite twenty years, but they're implicated as an autocrine function because they regulate myokines regulate metabolism in the muscle. But not only is it autocrine. They can also, the myokines, because they're very potent bioactive molecules or proteins too, so they're somewhat stable in circulation, they can also carry out paracrine and endocrine regulation, as I was saying, of many other tissues and organs, and I just mentioned three of them, and I will say it again. Adipose tissue is under myokine surveillance and regulation, the liver, and of course, the central nervous system, and they're going to be receptors for those myokines. And what are they? If they're in leukin 6 family of cytokines, you know, they're going to be the um, GP-130 and then the complex surrounding that, right? Those kinds of proteins found embedded in the membrane. Now, myostatin was first identified as a myokine way back in the late 90s. And you have a secretome-based analysis that was being conducted on human myocytes in culture. And what was discovered, now again, it's the cell culture. It's different than the intact muscle. But in cell culture, some 600 myokines were described. And of course, some of them ended up being interleukin-6 family. But the majority of these myokines, simply because they're produced from muscle cells or in skeletal muscle, isolated and going through contraction cycle. Doesn't mean we really understand their function. Okay. So they're signaling because they're extracellular, but do some of them generate um, downstream processing for, let's say, lipoprotein uptake or for neural transmission? Right. There are a lot of unknowns about what myoclines are doing. We do know that they are significant and that they are essential because when you start uh, doing knockouts of myokines, this would be in an animal model system like a mouse, you find all kinds of corruption, not just of skeletal muscle uh, or smooth muscle uh, contraction, but also in overall uh, healthy homeostasis. So you know that myokines are doing more. And, and of course, if they're working in the central nervous system, that already puts them into that rarefied category of being acting and functioning as true endocrine hormones especially if they're causing alterations in gene expression on the CNS, okay? But they are, they are involved in muscle contraction as well. So you get, you get the entire gambit of physio- physiological responses from myocides, and that's really important to understand. Now, let me jump into a, a discussion of lipids here. There has been a great deal of interest in sphingolipids. Sphingolipids, of course, like the parent compound sphingomyelin is the lipid that coats the axon and myelin-coated neurons, right? But we also know that besides that uh, sphingomyelin acting as an insulator, the, the removal or degradation of sphingomyelin can cause disease such as multiple sclerosis, right? Uh, sphingomyelin turnover, of course, we talked about the central nervous system for generating ketone bodies as well, and the astrocyte neuron interaction. But I want you to understand, and again, I don't presume you listen to all these lectures, but if you've been listening to my lipid lectures over the years, you know that sphingolipids are also very important in signaling. We talk a great deal about ceramide. So ceramide is a sphingosine base, which is produced uh, by the condensation of palmitoyl-CoA and serine. That's what a sphingosine base is. You put a double bond into that palmitic acid that's generated after the um, binding between, uh, uh, with serine, after palmitic acid is bound via its carboxylic acid. Now, that double bond is a trans-double bond. We mentioned that before okay, that particular compound then has a free nitrogen atom, which is was delivered from a serine residue originally. And that nitrogen atom can be acylated with fatty acid. That's when you make ceramide, okay? So ceramide is an acylated sphingosine molecule. And the fatty acid can be anything from uh, palmitate or sterate, two saturated fatty acids coming directly after de novo FAS. Or they can be monoenoic, like an oleic acid. And of course, very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, such as the omega 3 class and omega 6 class. Here we're talking about uh, arachidonic acid and the omega 6 class primarily, but also we find eicosapentaenoic and docosahexanoic acid, which are of the omega 3 series linked into that amide linkage to that nitrogen atom uh, on that sphingosine base, making it a ceramide. Now, sphingosine then is when you have a ceraminidase remove that fatty acid and sphingosine 1-phosphate is the product of a kinase reaction on the free sphingosine. So now we're up to sphingosine 1-phosphate. That particular lipid has multiple bioactive roles, and it's found enriched in the blood and in the lymphatic system when there is an active inflammatory response. Now, we know that ceramide's involved in programmed cell death. And I told you that often sphingosine counters that. That's intracellularly. Okay. And that has a lot to do, too, with the... Um, inhibition of lipid membrane raft biosynthesis, okay, and turnover. So that's a totally different thing. Let me explain a little bit more detail here now. Stringosine 1-phosphate, because it's found in the lymphatic system and also in general circulation, and it's associated with inflammation, means that there must be a linkage of sphingosine 1-phosphate with the inflammatory state because you know where we see it most? In in diseases associated with a chronic inflammation and obesity is the major one. But you also see sphingosine 1-phosphate in breast cancer patients, in circulation and in the lymphatic system, particularly in the lymph nodes, it increases. This is S1P, sphingosine 1-phosphate. So, of course, that particular phosphorylated sphingosine is generated by an enzyme called sphingosine kinase 1. And that's exported out of cells, and it signals through specific sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors, that is the product of the reaction. And we know it regulates multiple cellular processes because we know it's linked to um, exacerbation in breast cancer. Because it seems to involve cell growth, survival, invasion, and even the uh, errors that are found in breast cancer development for lymphocyte and leukocyte trafficking okay, during an early stages of breast cancer development. Stringocine1 phosphate also involved in vascular integrity, angiogenesis that plays a major role. And then finally, where we get back to the N6 uh, discussion, it's a uh, 1-phosphate involved in cytokine and chemokine transcription, translation, and secretion. Therefore, activation of the entire cytokine um, family, which can include pro-inflammation, right? Of course. Now, many clinical studies have been done uh, in humans, and it's shown that sphingosine kinase 1 is in fact overexpressed in breast cancer. And in fact, when it is overexpressed, it is correlated, unfortunately, positively with poor outcome, right? High morbidity and, and also connected to high mortality, late stage breast cancer, particularly after metastasis. The C1-phosphate is a bad player here. And because of those observations, it's been suggested that S1P, when you find it elevated in the plasma of obese humans, this may be a linkage of obesity to breast cancer. Because I told you at the beginning of these, this, these lectures that obesity is associated with cardiovascular disease obesity is associated with metabolic disease. And now we're talking about obesity being associated with oncogenesis, cancer. And what is the major cause of uh, death uh, in cancers in women? It's breast cancer because of its high um, potency and availability to become metastatic very quickly, right? Okay. Especially when post-menopausal women, when there's an endocrine hormone involvement now, these clinical studies have shown that the sphingosine, sphingosine kinase one is overexpressed in uh and breast cancer, as I said, and associated with bad outcomes. So, because of that, clinicians are interested in measuring S1P levels. Okay, and where they find high levels of S1P is in obese people, and because of that, they think that this obesity again it may be associated with the increase or even the promotion of breast cancer. Now, the sphingosine kinase and then the product of that, sphingosine 1-phosphate, and then the binding of that lipid to its receptor, remember there's multiple receptors for sphingosine 1-phosphate, but the one we're talking about here in breast cancer lineage conversation is sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor 1, or S1PR1. So that's an axis, sphingosine kinase, S1P, S1PR1, okay? And that whole axis actually is linked to obesity. It's also linked to, within the obesity involvement, low-grade chronic inflammation, and yes, directly correlated with incidence of postmenopausal breast cancer. So- Because of that, you can just take out one of the components of that axis and talk about sphingosine 1-phosphate and ask the question, does sphingosine 1-phosphate act as either a reporter or an agent provocateur for inducing metastasis, okay? And that's kind of what what, we're at now in the scientific literature in 2022. Is that axis of the kinase? shrink c phosphate which is the product, and the receptor, is that axis, and we target that axis, could that be a potential pharmaceutical, pharmacotherapeutic um, target? Okay. So again, obesity inflammation itself can induce, because of chronic inflammation, can start causing alterations in gene expression, either because of mutation or because of epigenetic modifications, that can be part of the induction of a primary tumor, okay? So it's directly, direct, directly related to the initial phase or the prodromal phase of tumorogenesis. You get a primary tumor. Now, it doesn't have to be directly as a tumor within the breast, but it could be associated with it because the breast is a highly bioactive ductal organ there are a great deal of reactive oxygen species mediated mutations in breast tissue. So obesity, because it enhances the inflammatory response and you already have mutations that are occurring in highly bioenergetic, high turnover tissues, such as the breast, you can see how obesity is gonna exacerbate that. And then because of obesity-inducing chronic inflammation can lead to a primary tumor. And hence, we get the whole sequelae downstream. I'm going to pick up on this exactly where we are now. Finish the conversation about breast cancer and obesity and bring back in T2D, the bioenergetic component. We're already talking about lipids. We already know that lipids are linked. Lipids is, uh, T2D is a dyslipidemia. I keep on making that argument. I hope I'm starting to convince you of this uh, because it's involved in, in the pro-inflammatory response. That's the only thing you want to remember right now this afternoon. Of course, it's about the alteration of gene expression and epigenetic retailoring of gene expression. Okay, stopping here, Dr. Dan Guerra on the 31st of March, 2022, saying, "By for now.